Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Durham University Center for Catholic Studies, a center for Catholic theology in the public academy. For more information, visit centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in November 2019 at a conference on the Franciscan legacy, a conference hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies and sponsored by the Franciscan families of the UK and Ireland. This lecture by John McCafferty is entitled Franciscan History, All Who Live in the Whole World. The history of Franciscan movement is one that is surprisingly devoid of an in-depth knowledge of its founders' writings. Um, I think Bill will recognise those words from the preface that he co-wrote. But also, actually, oddly enough, since Vatican II, the Advantes approach has meant there's been a huge concentration, and perhaps somewhat of an over-concentration on the first 150 years of Franciscan history. And I think we should bear that in mind. Um, this is a movement that's been working itself out for 800 years. And in fact, most of the cultural production of Franciscans and members of the Franciscan family actually really dates from the 16th and 17th centuries, just saying. But um, what I also want to say about Franciscans is because there are so many of them, and they appear so often in history, like in moments like European colonization of uh, New Spain, they tend to become decoupled from themselves, what I call the Friar Tuck effect. You know, oh, something happens, there must always be a friar there. You know? So it becomes all habit and no habitus. Um, so I think what we should start doing is thinking with the brothers and sisters of Francis. And I think that means two things. For secular historians, that means realizing that the dossier, the deposit of the Franciscan movement, is an archive of the transcendent of a faith community. And its tradition gives it its taste, texture, and tone. So, for secular historians, there's a theological, juridical, and spiritual language to learn, and there are customs to be grasped and patterns perceived. For Franciscans, they need to understand fully that historians use them and their records to think through other problems. Now, I know that hurts, um, but sometimes historians think about Franciscans to think about other stuff not just about Francis. And I want to come back to that because I think there's a lot of potential in that, in the future, for the kind of partnership that is being proposed at this conference. But I want to begin, having slagged off everybody for concentrating on the early period, I want to begin with Francis and Claire, of course. Um, and I like Francis because Francis appears often with a book, The Rule, and I want to talk about The Rule as the actual beginning of Franciscan history. And I also want to think about Francis as a book himself. In the stigmata, the history of salvation is literally written on Francis's uh, body. Now, to start off, uh, Francis is actually not very good at history. All he has is a trembling presence. He has no past. And in Francis, time itself, and I put up some quotes here, is about to crumple in on itself. He's very apocalyptic. It's all about to be over. And his quotes are always in the present tense. He barely uses the past tense at all in the early part of his writings. And the veil of the world is about to be pushed aside for heaven. It's all very imminent, as well as imminent. Imminent, as well as imminent. And he prays, his present prays, always, it's all about the present, praising God now. And the note of all this, of course, is the Eucharist. 
The present is also the Eucharist. It's a temporal node where past, present, and future all interact. In the sense of both the presence of the risen Christ, actually, in the transubstantiated Eucharist, and of nowness. So the Eucharistic Francis is all about, um, all about a present. So when does Franciscan history start? Well, I'm going to suggest it doesn't start with Francis. It starts with the regular non gulata. That's when the past tense enters Francis' writing. In a weave of John 17, um, shortly after his declaration, now that we have left the world, now there's a past in Francis. Franciscan history begins with the person of Francis, but is always recorded from the very first time in a plural and in a collective. And you don't have a brain, have to have a brain the size of a planet to work out the old conundrum that there's a difference between Francis and Franciscans. Okay? And this is what we need to think about, that constant interplay. So we have this record that begins with Francis and writing the rule. The first thing he says is, now that we have left the world. And now we get a sustained sense of the past, of salvation and mission, and a past which involves, giving it the word, a traditio. The past begins with apostolic life. Like there are very few uh, references in his writings at all about anything to do with anything in the past, apart from one uh, solo reference uh, sorry, going too fast, uh, to the saints. But once there's a rule, whether the earlier rule or the later rule, there is a Franciscan past. And Francis has caused a historical process to begin. Because now, actions are relatable back to a historical moment. And you know, people often look at this letter to Anthony as about the beginning of learning in the order and the whole conundrum of learning. And again, I won't bore you by going over that old chestnut. But it's what's, it, what's interesting here is, is Francis, when he talks about learning, is going back to the rule. He's going back to his year zero in uh, the Franciscan tradition. The moment, the moment where the movement begins to be written down. And it's his desire to replicate the way of life that requires the rule and the admonitions and the test groups. So it's the way of life that creates a dossier, as I see it, of historical material. Francis comes to reify the rule, not just as a way of living, but as a point in time, as an historical object, and as a foundation stone. So when we get to the Testament, and, and you see here when he's writing for the ladies of San Damiano, it's that same idea of movement. You have come here. Something you did in the past has made a Franciscan present. So anyway, when we get to the end of his life, Francis is full-on historian, okay? He's got it. Uh, there is a past. And he comes to write history. And, as you know, the Testament is, is full of references to the rule. And his insistence on the integrity of the text. And this is very important. The integrity of the archive. No glossing, folks. Uh, and wasn't he right about that? Um, so Francis' archival awareness grows, not just as a moment of propagation and message, but for legacy. Francis is trying to control his legacy. This is how we historians would see his action here. And there's a growing self-awareness of himself as, and I feel sorry for reading these texts over the last few weeks, suddenly Francis goes, oh my God, I'm after founding a religious order. I founded a movement. I didn't really want to do this, is my impression. With the, um, the other thing I think that's very important is what that history comes to mean when the Clares, when the poor Clares become involved. Because for them there's always a history because there's a founder. I, Clare, the little plant of the Holy Father. So there's already been a historical moment, a historical uh, transaction in Clare's relationship with Francis. 
But she is especially revealing about the purpose of Francis's writings. And I was very interested in what she said about humili humility taking the place of poverty, because it's quite clear here the purpose of Francis's writings, as far as Claire is concerned, is to defend the lifestyle, the life of poverty. So I think there's an instrumentality in Franciscan history, both at its root and its elaboration, that is critical to understanding it. And that's why, in a way, I spent some time on it. Now, I was going to talk about what happens after um, Francis dies, but I think you all know that. Francis moves into the past, of course, and his life becomes dissolved in the hagiography. And that's not always a bad thing. I mean, the best way to take aspirin is to dissolve it in water. But his life does become dissolved in the hagiography. He's already lost control of his own uh, writings. He becomes a new man. And what's really interesting, I think, in the movement there of Francis, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is that Francis is, in some ways, a new kind of saint because of the stigmata. Because he doesn't just do miracles, or God doesn't just work miracles through him. He is himself a miracle. His stigmatized body is a miracle. He's an entirely new kind of saint. He's become a vessel of revelation. He's become that kind of mode, node in time that he understood the Eucharist to be. So the loose historical coupling of the life of the founder and the lives of the followers, because after 1244 the general chapter decides that there should be Franciscan history, that other chronicles uh, should be written, all, all of that generates like a Tesla coil the sparks that have animated all Franciscan history since that point in the 13th century. So having spent exactly one half of my time thinking about Francis' sense of history, I want to spend the other half, the remaining ten minutes I have, to talk about where the opportunities lie in Franciscan history. And I think we can see the opportunities in the kind of history Francis himself wrote. I'm quite excited about this. It may be all rubbish, of course, but you can, you can decide. You can decide. There's a huge opportunity here. And I want to identify four places where I see an opportunity. Uh, the first is in poverty, of course. And we won't talk about poverty itself. Um, but there, I think there are three constants in Franciscan history. The aspiration to poverty is always there, even though you fight like dogs over it. There is always a working with and for the poor, always there. And Franciscans always beg. And archivally, this is very interesting, because the poor themselves are always poorly documented. The only time states or bodies care about the poor is when they become annoying. The really interesting thing about the Franciscans is they're professionally poor, but archivally they manifest themselves in the historical record like rich people. They're well, well documented their corporate bodies concerned with their charism and its regulation. And what I love about Franciscan history is that poverty creates a manic, obsessive, and pointless accounting system. Also busy fighting about poverty, you keep a note of everything. And that is very, very useful. Your forensicness about frugality is incredibly helpful to this So I think in your records of poverty, there is a way in which the poor and marginalised can be coaxed more and more out of that record. Because you kept a list of every poor soul who gave you a shackle over all this time. There is a massive, precious resource here to be exploited to recreate the voices of the poor through your very rich archives. I think that's very promising. I think it's particularly promising for those who work in the history of the 19th and 20th century. 
The other big opportunity I think you have is to do with globalism. And we hear a lot about globalism these days, of course. Um, and that's why I chose this for the title of my talk, All Live in the Same World, in This Whole World. Because Francis's collapse of space is as marked as his collapse of time. Um, what he has is, and I could talk about this a lot, but I'm going to reduce it down to two very simple things. There's two movements in Franciscan history. One is friars group, disperse, regroup, disperse, regroup, disperse. This gives us huge caches of anthropological, topological, cultural history, especially in mission history. But there's also an incredible intimacy. The funny thing about um, Franciscan globalism is it's always relentlessly local, because you're always begging off the locals. <laughs> so you're there, again, recording an awful lot about local history, even though you do it globally. And what I think is particularly interesting spiritually, and there is so much work to be done on this, because I'm actually convinced, and this is the moment where I'm going to get soppy, I am absolutely convinced that the only reason that this entire planet is still in existence is because of, and you can take a bow, those of you who are here, those who live in enclosed communities and pray for us all. Their global spiritual sensibility is the other part of that Franciscan uh, globalism. That gives us two big opportunities. The endlessly transnational nature of Franciscan family merits study in itself. And Franciscans must be pushed out of the bars and frames of national historiographies where they have been too often put. There are too many histories of Irish Franciscans, German Franciscans, Italian Franciscans, Filipino Franciscans, Latin American Franciscans. There's a great opportunity for historians to break those barriers down. The other thing is what Franciscan history shows is that global history is not always about your empires, your civilizations, or expansion or decline. But Franciscan history is about a sustained movement in humanity that has been working itself out for 800 years. And I was particularly struck by what Jacques said earlier. These 30 years, and then these 800 years, the little and the large, as you, as you, as you, as you showed. And I just have a quotation there from um, Luke Wiley, which I could talk about for a long time. But it's that endless sense of globalism. People came running from everywhere, the crowds swelled, and were quickly joined as living stones. It's there from the very start in the movement. The idea that people come run, run, running to this movement. The third thing I want to talk about is I don't normally really enjoy a Vatican document, but <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. In, um, on the 9th of October 1604, a conventional friar called Hilario Altebelli. Um, who uh, was a professor of maths in Verona, observed um, the 1604 supernova, the one we now know as Kepler, the one that's in the Crab Nebula. And I, I thought thinking about Altidale is interesting because he's a practitioner of religious life, but he's also a partner in a shared secular intellectual endeavour. And he's a kind of model, rather like Mary Beth was talking about the School of Toledo, a model for us. Classical function of church archives um, constantly talks. A, about um, partnership and the cultural patrimony of the church. And you can see what they're talking about here. The idea that we would use the 2,000-year-old, in the case of Franciscan movement, just over 800-year-old record, to create a common conscience of respect. In the church archives, as Paul VI looked to say, are kept the traces of the transitus domini in human history. And there is a Franciscan story about the transitus that we can take up in these archives. 
And I think there are um, three potential goods that come from partnership between historians like myself and between you brothers and sisters and tertiaries of St. Francis. First of all, I think it is imperative that work by historians from outside the tradition, I mean, it's too late for me, you got me, but it's too late, but people are often totally outside, may lead to insights that those inside the tradition might not have or struggle to have. I think that's worth thinking about. Um, and it may be worth the earlier rule says, whoever comes to them, friend or foe, thief or robber, let him be received with kindness. I think it may be worth having dialogue, and I think it is worth having dialogue, well, not only with people like our friends here in Durham, who want to work with all of us who are interested in the Franciscan movement, but also those who are hostile to it, directly hostile. There may be insights to be found there. I think for those who are inside, who are Franciscans, collaboration has a legitimate pastoral potential. I think it's fair enough. I mean, you're in the gospel business. You're not going to hide your life under a bushel. I think there is a fair exemplarity to be had here in partnership, in the generosity that the Franciscans may show to us secular scholars. It's very moving. It's very important. And I think both sides then become better informed and mutually respectful. And that's never to be underestimated, especially as more and more, it seems to me, and this is purely my opinion, more and more Catholics today are dangerously drawn into the culture wars of our times, into the Twitter and Facebook sphere, which generates spleen and dissension. And I think good collaboration between people from the secular world, if you like, and Franciscans has the potentiality to ignore those cultural wars, because they ain't worth fighting, in my view. Historical work and historical writing and archival stewardship become a point of exchange between the secular universities themselves, who have forgotten what they're descended from, the traditions of the schools of the 12th and 13th century. I want to finish on this note, and I'm going to talk about poverty. I've been being so disrespectful to your wonderful tradition of poverty up to now. I think there's one exciting point of exchange between the Franciscan movement and the world of the universities and of professional intellectuals. And oddly enough, it's something that engages us a lot in the university system. It's the open access movement. And the open access movement is a giving away of intellectual property. Okay? Sounds counterintuitive. And it has two strands. One is the regulating fiscal state, which says, hey, you lads in the university with your fat salaries, we paid for this, so give it away for free. The happens public now can have access to incredibly obscure articles of nuclear physics on the weird basis that they somehow paid for them, okay? <laughs> I wonder about it. But the second strand is very interesting, and that's what I want to finish on. There is an anti-consumer, anti-commercial attitude to intellectual property. And we go back to Francis and his attitude to writing. From the very start, you know, the famous comment of Minister General John O'Parma that the order rose in two columns, good life and learning. And I think all of this vibrates with resonances of simplicity and poverty. An open access movement, that secular open access movement that I'm talking about, which has no religious content, has a beating heart, and that is cost pooling. Okay? Cost pooling. Loads and loads of widows, loads and loads of mites put together creates 
a massive flow of intellectual energy. And I think that model of giving away your intellectual labor matches precisely the historic practice of receipt and distribution of alms by Franciscan bodies. I think that would be good. I think that would be a win-win for you guys. Principled and coordinated use of the open access movement by Franciscans would fit with Francis's own endorsement of learning and teaching for Anthony of Padua. You would honor that. It would be an act of faith and partnership with a movement in the secular world that docks precisely with Franciscan poverty. I think it also, and Jack referred to this about new generations, it would act as a stimulus, and not just because of its exemplarity, to a nuanced and critically appreciative study of Franciscan history. If you start giving it away, you will confuse the hell out of people, and they'll wonder what you're up to. <laughs> and also, we should do, I want to do, what Francis always does at the end, turn to scripture. And Francis, and the second letter of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 13, says, and this is the very heart of open access, bring me the books, and especially the archives. So, <laughs> Okay, sorry, cheap shot, but there you are. Even the devil. Um, the future, it seems to me, of the Franciscan past depends on people, to paraphrase Thomas of Chilano, who come run, run, running, so that the crowds swell up and become quickly joined as living stones. And may we all be living stones in the shared endeavor. Thank you.